Rachel Handler, your regular host of Lady Problems. Alas, I could not make the podcast this week, but when in need, my fellow ladies help me out. So you're going to hear Teo Bugby and Hazel Sill stepping in for me, and I'll be back next week. Hello, I'm Hazel Sills. And I'm Teo Bugby. And welcome to Lady Problems, a podcast in which every Thursday we look at the way pop culture is treating women in a given week, which is usually super shitty. Usually. <laughs> <laughs> Our host, Rachel Handler. Our fearless leader. Isn't here today, so we're going to be stepping in for her. And this week we'll be talking to Trish Bendix, the former editor-in-chief of After Ellen, which is a pop culture website devoted to covering lesbian and bi media. So last week, Bendix announced that After Ellen, which ran for 14 years, uh, would be shutting down due to a lack of advertising income and support. So basically what that means for readers of the site is that the archives are going to stay up, but they like don't have any writers and they don't have any new content. There's and no anyone, editorial staff. No editorial staff. It's just going to be freelancers, <laughs> which is you know highlighting the difficulty of just keeping a site maintained for lesbian women. So we'll be talking about some Lady Problems of the Week with Trish from Rolling Stone misgendering Laura Jane Grace in their latest issue to the new California law that protects Hollywood actresses from age discrimination so long as they're willing to veil themselves in a giant cloak of secrets. <laughs> uh, but we started by asking Trish to talk about her Lady Problem after Ellen's farewell and the future of lesbian media. So here you go. So when did you start off at After Ellen? Because you've been there for much of its much of its time. Right. I came on uh, first as a music writer in 2006. You know, Tegan and Sarah existed, but they were still playing very small uh, venues. But there, you know, there was La Tigra. And then there were also, you know, the M Melissa Ferrix and Melissa Etheridge's, the people that deserved some, you know, just as much um you know, time and attention, especially for the community that they are really directly serving, which is, you know, lesbian and bisexual women. Um, could you talk mm -hmm. about the shift in management that happened at After Ellen and sort of like the process of acquisition and how that changed the site while you were there? Sure. So right before I came on, I think maybe it was a year before I came on, uh, they, uh, Sarah Warren, who had independently owned not only After Ellen, but a brother site, After Elton, and also a news site called 365 Gay, uh, she sold those properties to Viacom. And oh, Viacom, hi, Viacom owned us under the... Yeah, hey. <laughs> um, we were owned, we were under the logo umbrella, um, which made perfect sense. You know, it, they were launching their um, sort of LGBT outreach. And so that was, you know, where we where we fit in. Uh, and then two years ago, they announced to us, you know, we came in for a meeting and they said, you know, we're selling you to this company, Evolve. And it was surprising. But, you know, I think that 
whenever you're not getting shut down or, you know, you're, you're still able to exist and, you know, people are promising you that they're going to give you the same space and resources to create the thing that you've already been doing and maybe even more so, you are optimistic and, you know, excited. And I actually was excited too because even though my longtime mentor, Carmen Craiglow, who had been with the site since the beginning, decided that this was her time to transition out, um, that would mean that I would step up as editor-in-chief. And so that was exciting for me to be able to take the reins and, um, you know, make decisions on my own and, you know, which is scary, but also fun prospect. So uh, one thing I want to say about when we first moved to Evolve is I had a really fantastic woman who was my boss, who was running the editorial of all of Totally Her sites, which is the branch of women's sites under Evolve Media. They also have a bunch of men's sites under the Crave side. Uh, Crave Online is their their right. largest site for men, which is you know very broy if you go look at. It. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so basically, I worked under oh this fantastic woman who had retired a couple months ago, and so um, she had shielded me from the patriarchy as long as possible, <laughs> as we like to joke. But she was really fantastic to work with. Had queer people in her family. Understood the site. I felt very safe with her, and then she left. Right. So So then your new manager and your new boss was uh, a man. I think that you you wrote a blog post about sort of this whole process of leaving after Ellen or being pushed out of after Ellen as as it were. And yeah, so how how did that sort of how did the site change in that? You know, like, how did you start to see changes under his management from the woman that you had been working with before? Right. Well, first, I didn't really have nearly as much contact with him. Um, I had regular weekly calls uh, with my my former boss. We checked in on many different things, whether it was, you know, the stats of the site, the content I had moving forward. Just, you know, it, it was very clear that she was invested. So at first I thought, okay, well, he's trusting. He's trusting me. But after a couple of times of um, having, you know, budgets slashed and feeling like I had to take on some more work um, in order to not give my freelancers less money because that's the last thing I wanted to do was pay them less for the work that they've already been doing. Uh, So when it came, it came kind of as a shock to me when he called and said that we were not going to be I essentially telling me that I was going to be let go and that periodically there would be freelancing in the future, but he wasn't sure what it would look like. It really was shocking because I did not know that they were considering this. I didn't, they obviously, I don't think that they've tried to sell it or thought about selling it. I think they want to keep it for the hits that it receives um, just on a daily basis from being such a resource and an archive of things. If people look up Kristen Stewart gay, they're going to find after Ellen. <laughs> so I think those are the things that they're banking on. And um, I think they didn't bank on the re- you know community response. Right. Yeah, because I, I feel like... Um under this new management, they sort of only saw After Ellen as just like a website. And do you think that they- Yeah, as opposed to a part of a community. Yeah, as opposed to a community. I mean, what is the community response, the commenters and the freelancers, what have their responses been so far? It's been very overwhelmingly um, (laughs) upset, uh, frustrated. I feel like there's been a lot of loss for lesbian and bisexual women, especially in the last decade. We've lost a lot of pivotal things, you know, things, lesbian bars and spaces and, you know, for better or for worse, the Michigan Women's Music Festival. This is like part of a a communal 
crisis. You know, it's like the closing of spaces, not just on the Internet, but also like in physical space, you know, like not being able to Mm -hmm. have like a, a lesbian specific bar in major cities is a huge change in the community. You know, like in even if you want to talk about um, just the way like 50 years ago, there were like 30 lesbian bars in New York, but right now there are four, you know, and it's there's. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were just curious, like to hear from you maybe about how non-male queer people function within queer space. Well, I think in media, there are definitely have, you know, Huffington Post has queer voices, BuzzFeed is their LGBT vertical. I think there are some places that are really trying to make an effort. So, and I'm not dogging them at all. I think what's great about mainstream media is that they are becoming more inclusive and bringing issues that wouldn't otherwise be a part of, um, you know, their, their what their coverage is. I, I'm so happy that they're doing those things. But it does significantly end up hurting smaller Um, queer run and sometimes queer funded uh, sites or organizations just because people are more familiar with or trusting of Huffington Post. Like I remember I'd written something for Huffington Post once, you know, and of course I didn't get paid because nobody gets paid. But my dad was so thrilled that I'd written for (laughs) Huffington Post. And I just thought it was so funny because I'm running a whole site (laughs) where I write things all the time. And then I write something for free and he's he can, you know, he knows what it is. So I think that, um, you know, there are a lot of really great sites right now. The Establishment is one of my favorite sites. They're really um, feminist, queer, inclusive, like on a, in a way that is just part of their um, editorial mission. And I, I want more sites to be, to be. Uh, to be that inclusive, to be that mindful, I guess. Like, I know that after Ellen, I tried to be more mindful of queer women of color, but I think it's one of those things where I'm never, I'm constantly going to have to push myself to be, to do even better with that just because of who I am and where I've come from. I just have to be very, very mindful moving forward and even more so in my, what I do next. So I think that if you're a straight person or even a gay man running a site, you have to push yourself to include women. You have to push yourself to include trans women. You have to do that because that's just the responsibility that we have. We have to be the ones covering our our own community. So what's interesting to me about the the verticals, uh, the LGBT verticals at BuzzFeed or HuffPost is is that they're they're very different than After Ellen and that After Ellen, you know, was very specific to queer women, to lesbian women. And I'm just curious if you think that, I mean, there are so few, like, blogs and websites that just cater to those issues specifically, like, existing. And uh, if if you feel like for, you know, blogs that cover, you know, lesbian pop culture, that they have to sort of be a part of a larger LGBT, you know, vertical or anymore. Yeah, like, even just today, I went to go to see, like, She Wired, and that's um, been, like, absorbed, absorbed into, into yeah. Pride.com. You know, it's like the, right. the larger, like, gay umbrella winds up, like, kind of yeah absorbing the bubble that is like lesbian and bisexual women's space yeah i think that a lot of sites and media that have money right now are going to try to keep it more vague because gay men specifically men in general are going to be who they who advertisers believe that they want to advertise to and i think that's the plight of any um specifically queer women site because i don't know why this is happening to us but we are only given attention in the lgbt realm of advertising and not as women which Mm -hmm. i think is completely um just missing a huge uh, just something that people could really be tapping into we buy the same things 
as heterosexual women. <laughs> it's like the assumption of like going off of the stereotype of lesbians where it's like, you know, we still have to buy things. Like it's not like everybody's like wearing the same Birkenstocks for 50 years. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just frustrating. I think it's uh, and that is a large part as to why we probably can't exist in the way that we want to in terms of having our own businesses um, that are lesbian specific or, um, you know, our own sites. I think that until we're seen as a worthy uh, place to put money and time and energy into, which clearly I don't think evolve. Well, clearly they'd let me know that it's not worth putting more money into. It can exist as is for now, but it's not worth, um, you know, any further sort of financial contribution, which is frustrating because we finally have some brand recognition. I mean, the site, I can't tell you, I've only lived in LA for two years. And so I've only been able to, go to set visits or press junkets or the kind of places that we need to compete with those mainstream verticals that have had that access. And so to finally be able to have people say they know what After Ellen is and they respect it and they want to give us interviews or access to things and now to not have that anymore is just really frustrating because we deserve to have those same chances with people to ask, you know, hey, you're a straight dude and you put a 10 minute sex scene between two straight women playing lesbians in your film. Like, why? Yeah. (laughs) Do you ever feel like um, part of the frustration too in terms of like setting up lesbian media sites especially comes to though from like just the evolution of like queer discourse in general you know as like younger generations sort of kind of have given up on labeling in a way that was true to maybe older generations before how how does like queer media how does lesbian media shift into a sort of more fluid narrative? Yeah, that's always been a difficulty for me in the last couple of years because there's so many different generations now that read the same site and are part of the same community, and yet they don't agree with the language being used. I mean, queer is very offensive to a lot of older women. I've gotten a lot of messages saying that they don't refer to themselves as queer. They will never accept it. Um, And yet it's the only really umbrella term I can use when I'm, especially in, say, something like a headline, where I'm trying to be as inclusive as possible because there are women that uh, more and more today don't have an identity, don't claim a for themselves and if they do identify as something it's not necessarily lesbian it's not necessarily bi it might be pan it might be demi it might be um, you know homo romantic and so it's difficult in a uh, a website where you're trying to reach a very specific community if you can't use any sort of keywords that um, allow people to find you because for better or for worse if someone's looking up a wedding between two women they're going to type in lesbian wedding they're going to you know lesbian is kind of that unifier um that doesn't necessarily um work as well with some of the you know um I don't want to say smaller identities, but like just lesser, you know, they they just have um, less um, mainstream sort of recognition. So it's it's one of those things that what's queer friendly is not necessarily SEO friendly is what I like to say, because it's it's a really fine line to walk to not be offensive to some people and to let them know that you are really trying to speak to them and, and sometimes for them. And so that that can be a really that can be difficult. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, Trish, why don't you tell us, you know, sort of what's next for you uh, after, 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 after Ellen, sorry, (laughs) (laughs) and your writing and editing in general? 
I do have um, a new job that I can't say what it is yet, but Ooh, it'll be coming secret. out this week. <laughs> so yeah, I can't talk about it yet, but <laughs> it'll be announced in the next couple of days. But I'm very excited, and I'll just say that it's um, with much, very much within the realm of what I've already been doing. So it's very exciting. Hazel is also a music writer, and so if Hazel wants to, I don't know, introduce this yeah, issue. Yeah, so the one of the lady problems of the week is that uh, Rolling Stone published this editorial um, about Laura Jane Grace, who is the trans frontwoman of the band Against Me. And in the profile, there is a picture of her uh, laying in a bathtub, and she or she's topless, and you can see her nipples. And uh, Rolling Stone doesn't typically do this with its, uh, you know, women in the magazine. I mean, they do photograph them sort of. uh, (laughs) Yeah, Rolling Stone has a history of like wild objectification of literally any woman in Rolling Stone. They're always wearing like white tank tops. Yeah. yeah. So so that's its own issue. Rolling Stone objectifying women in their pages is its own issue. But Grace's ex-wife, Heather Gable, was really upset by the editorial. Um, And she wrote this response on her Facebook because she was upset that um, she was upset with the article because it focused so heavily on Grace's uh, transition. But specifically regarding the photo, she thought that because Grace's nipples were not censored like other women have in the magazine, um, that it was the magazine basically misgendering um, Laura Jane Grace. Yeah, or like putting an assumption about the value of her body. Yeah. So, I mean, then this is sort of like an ongoing problem with the media's treatment of of trans women. Um, Actress Hari Neff uh, gave an interview last year with Good Magazine where she talked about how trans women are like repeatedly sexualized. Yeah. And Laverne Cox has talked about that, too. In photo shoots, because photographers always want to photograph trans women naked. Right. Yeah. So... What would be the solution to this intense, <laughs> this intense, like ongoing, you know, sort of trope of photographing trans women, you know, naked? Oh my gosh! Well, I think putting them, putting them into like, um, uh, if they, I, I feel like if so many times, if the photographers or the editors or writers of when they're putting women like that terrible Margot Robbie um, profile oh, yeah. not that long ago Classic, that happened, these things I always. I always think like if they just for a second stopped and thought about what they would be doing in the situation with a man, like how they would position it differently. And um, I think specifically when you're talking about trans women, you have to be even more conscious of things like that because it is um, they are still so underrepresented in this sort of like Rolling Stone is not, you know, covering trans women every week. It's just Mm -hmm. they what. So when they do, they have to be even more careful and more conscious of the message that they're promoting. And I think that overall, with not only that photo, but just the way that the article was written, it just did a disservice to Laura Jane and the message that I think that she would want to um, get be out there about her, at least from what I can tell. She hasn't made any sort of, I, I haven't seen anything from her, an acknowledgement of the piece other than she retweeted it. So I'm right. not sure maybe she felt like it really did her justice. But um, you, but like we, what you were saying with, you know, the way that Rolling Stone depicts women all the time. Yeah, white tank tops, totally. Um, I don't know why the, <laughs> what their obsession is with that. But I do feel like um, 
they specifically wanted a topless photo because they wanted to get this kind of attention and didn't care if part of it was negative. They wanted right. to create mm-hmm. some sort of like stir conversation and that disregards something about Laura Jane outside of her sexuality because they are just not, they they asked her, I'm sure, to remove the top. Yeah. <laughs> they said they came to her, I'm sure, with this idea of a bathtub. If she, if I find out that it was Laura Jane's idea, then I'd be like, okay, you know, maybe <laughs> I, I won't um, think so, think that it's, it was so terrible on Rolling Stone's behalf. But something tells me that this was their, their big idea instead of, you know, putting her on the stage or in a room um, with, you know, guitars on the wall or something that has something to say outside of here she is topless right and I think that's like in general a real problem that straight media in general has with queer people is reducing people down to just their sexuality and just what they do in bed just what their bodies look like just whatever Mm -hmm. and instead Mm -hmm. of like focusing on like the real person there you know like Laura Jane is like like she's a musician like I don't think that she's thinking about her own nipples <laughs> like during you know during right. a photo shoot I highly doubt that's the first thing on her mind yeah there's something sort of <laughs> there's something sort of like gimmicky yeah it's totally it. gimmicky mm-hmm. well and it's also like Rolling Stone being a magazine that sells magazines in like the middle of nowhere Nebraska you know like there are so many people who aren't familiar with trans issues who that's like the first their first point of interest you know what I mean and it's like you don't have to cater to that you know just because like Mm -hmm. some people are ignorant you don't have like a responsibility to cater to ignorance so what the solution what solution everyone photograph (laughs) trans women you know as if you know they're they're people and not just like I mean I feel like I'm always down, like, we, we can always just, like, show nipples always, you know, like, <laughs> like the nipples are fine. Yeah, because that's, like, yeah, yeah, because that's one of the thing that, uh, one of the things that Gable brought up in her, um, in her Facebook post is she was like. Yeah, like, what's so offensive about a nipple in the first place? But then, like, like yeah. Should it be show nipples always or. Show nipples always, <laughs> all the nipples. Oh. Every person who works right. at Rolling Stone shows up and gets photographed nipples only. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's the double standard right now. I think that trans women already feel like they're being separated from cis women. And if cis women are appearing on the next page, very scantily clad, but their nipples are blurred or whatever. And then Laura Jane's on the next page and she's allowed to be completely, you know, half nude from the top up. Then the, you're again, pointing out a differentiation between you know what cis women are and trans women are in in this you know very highly read magazine and in some cases highly respected i'm not sure if it has the same <laughs> reputation that it used to but yeah Ooh, shade <laughs> rolling stone shade. <laughs> no i'm just saying i don't know i didn't i used to be a subscriber back in the day but yeah <laughs> The other thing that we wanted to talk about uh, is this issue of 
the law that was passed in California that will now allow actors to get their ages removed from IMDb. And there's this um, there's an amazing quote um, from this article that I'm just going to read because it's so funny. But in 20, well, it's like so terrible. <laughs> it's, it's too bad. Um, in 2014, a study looking at the earnings of 168 male and 97 female movie stars between 1968 and 2008 found that the yearly average income for men rose until age 51 and then leveled off. Whereas for women, income increased until age 34 and then went off a cliff, falling sharply for the remainder of their careers. (laughs) (laughs) Which is... God. The bleakest yet also most predictable truth. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so this is... This is fascinating to me. I mean, I I don't know. I part of me thinks like that there should be more transparency with age. I mean, because we we all know that um, female actresses lie about their age all the time. They get plastic surgery. They dodge questions. They you know doctor yearbooks and all sorts of things so they can you know make as much money or more money than their male counterparts. Which seems I don't know. It seems like incredibly hard to just like be yourself right totally be a aging human and just like on the flip side i'm always really here for scamming in general like the concept it's terrible obviously that women have to lie about their age to get a job ridiculous like of course naturally that's a a terrible terrible thing however all of the low stakes lying (laughs) i'm really into just like the concept of walking around just casually lying all the time about like one really like arbitrary and not that important part of yourself is hilarious well i you know at first i was thinking about it in terms of you know actors or an actresses specifically you know being closeted or hiding something about themselves that i you know that the public feels like they have a right to know but when i think about the age i don't know that anybody t- not putting their age on their imdb is really hurting anyone i don't believe that they're um not being transparent about it on some a, a place that casting directors or Hollywood goes to um, to specifically decide to hire somebody. I think that they're, you know, most of the time they're not allowed to ask you if you're gay in a job uh, interview either. So um, I would think that if it if it helps actresses to get more employed and is not harmful to anyone, I mean, well, who's going to harm the movie studios if they find out that their actress is actually 30 when she's playing a 17 year old? Like there are a lot of <laughs> actresses that do that very convincingly, and I'm totally fine with that. So I um, I think I'm just gonna have to side with uh, the actresses who yeah. are tired of. Um, <laughs> Losing out on roles for every reason, including the fact that they're a woman. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, always side with the actresses. When in doubt, side with right. the actresses. All yeah. my roommates are actresses right now. <laughs> I know. What is acting if not lying all the time? Yeah. And being 35. And nobody has, like, the right to know. Like, the right to know your age is, like, a ridiculous thing. One of the things we should be clear about with this particular issue is that, I mean, it's as that quote said, you know, it's ridiculous that women over a certain age can't get work at all or are like Marissa Tomei and are suddenly a grandma like (laughs) to Spider-Man, you know what I mean? And like there's Mm -hmm. a history over time of sort of women being devalued as they get older and in contrast to men who like can do whatever they want or like Clint Eastwood like talking to chairs and still win Oscars, you know. (laughs) Um, But 
it's important to say that like it, it is a real problem that you can't maintain a lifelong career in as an actress or that it's so difficult to maintain a lifelong career as an actress and that like yeah like you said like if this is helpful then by all means I'm just saying maybe we can start scamming bigger <laughs> yeah and I <laughs> I respect that you know I do want to side with the actresses and say you know you don't have to disclose your age but I I also don't want them to have to be in a position where they have to lie, especially right. When yeah, like the men real, certainly don't have to lie. Totally, the real problem here is that like the men hiring the women who are actresses, like the men like writing parts for women, the men like creating shows, like aren't doing a good job at imagining the full spectrum of what a woman's life is, and like the full mm-hmm. spectrum, including like the last sixty years. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. I think that it's like slowly. I mean, there was a couple movies in the last couple of years, but of course they were both from women. The Meddler and Hello, My Name is Doris that really um, were fantastic. But those are two in how many films that got made last year. And it's so funny because I saw a lot of trend pieces. And I think I even wrote one about because they both had some queer inclusiveness um, that, uh, you know, it's great that this is finally happening. But I don't know that I think it's kind of a fluke. And that's sad. We still need to have way more parts written for Sally Field and Susan Sarandon and Meryl Streep and you know not just them but women that get even less work than they do it, it's it's you're like you guys were saying it's incredible the the numbers that prove that men just have so many more opportunities especially after a certain age it's just mind-boggling yeah not every woman can be on American Horror Story okay <laughs> oh god <laughs> yeah I was I I just remembered a sort of like a a tweet that I saw before and it was about this is kind of low-hanging fruit but it was like a James Bond poster with Daniel Craig and Leah Seydoux and someone was like oh it's so nice that James Bond took his daughter to work (laughs) like she's (laughs) the new I mean do you feel like there's just more of a growing awareness or even awareness or even annoyance with the fact that you You know what I think is that because like so many um there's so many more avenues for people to watch movies. Like, you can get a movie on VOD that, like, really small budget films are starting to pick up on older women. You know, like, Grandma was was out last year. There's, like, kind so of, like, good. this niche. Yeah, the, the Lily Tomlin movie um, where she's playing a grandma who's, like, helping her granddaughter uh, get an abortion. Yeah, and Grandma was written by Paul White. So, I mean, there is the ability to get a movie made with, a, you know, a woman of a certain age, and in that case, even a queer woman, a lesbian character. Yeah. Um, but I think it probably, I mean, I'm not sure how much, what their budget was compared to some of the other films I just mentioned with women at the helm, but I I would be surprised if they he didn't have uh, more access to financials and support because he's a man that was uh, in charge of that film. But that's that's a whole nother thing (laughs) yeah no that's so true it's also but it's also worth saying too that like that was Lily Tomlin's first leading role in a film Mm -hmm. like as the single lead of a movie or like and the same thing happened with Blythe Danner last year too like I forget what her film was called but she was that's also her first solo lead performance so there there is like a shift I think minor shift that seems to be really focused also on like white older women and white mm-hmm. wealthier women. Um, but or like, yeah, Jay, Grace and Frankie, Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin's TV show being like a, a prime example, too. But that is different from, you know, even just 20 years ago 
when there were zero movies, <laughs> zero movies made about like ladies over the age of sixty. Yeah, so I guess like the solution, I, the solution is like the law was the solution. Like they found the solution on their own. Yeah. <laughs> like they 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 fixed their problem somewhat, but like the real solution is like getting more films made for women. So we all watched this film, Fur, um, to continue our segment of fucked up in a good way movies about women, (laughs) (laughs) which uh, was debuted on our debut episode with another Nicole Kidman movie called Birth. But Fur is a film that she made in around the same time that is a biopic of the photographer Diane Arbus. Um, and I use the term biopic pretty loosely because yeah. Fur is pretty wild. And so, like, I guess, Trish, like, do you have any thoughts about the movie? I know when we emailed you, you said that you, you had seen it before and were, were into it. Yeah, well, I um, one of my favorite movies of all time is Secretary, and that was the movie Ooh, that Stephen Chainberg and... Yeah, so it's the same director, the same writer, Erin Crusada Wilson. I love her work. So um, when I first saw her, I remember um, really enjoying that. It was sort of a continuation in the way that if you watch the two movies, you can see a lot of thematic and um, just certain elements that they kind of play off of each other, which if you have not seen Secretary, I highly recommend it. But um, for Fur, what I loved about it was that as someone who knew like a little bit about Deanne Arbus, which my lesbian connection was that High Art, the movie starring Ali Sheedy, was sort of loosely based on <laughs> That's her, a really so good movie, that's too. That's why I knew. Yes, it's a great movie. Um, so I knew a little bit about her going in, but not a lot. And it seems like they definitely take a lot of liberties, you know, fictionally of her in this film. But man, what a um, depiction of uh, an interesting woman who is really just trying to find who she is in a time where that's the last thing that society wants from you is for you to have any sort of self-exploration and I thought that uh, Nicole Kidman was great yeah no she is great she's always great um, yeah, she's just trying to find the man under the fur, you know? Yeah. I, I did I did enjoy this film because of its sort of the liberties that they take with her story. But I will say, <laughs> I, I will say that watching it, I felt like I was watching like a manic pixie dream boy situation where... Oh, yeah, <laughs> totally. He's like such like a fantasy yeah. boy. And I felt a little weird that she had to meet a man, even though he is an interesting... <laughs> handsome Mm. man under all the fur but um to sort of Of like ignite her creativity as an artist i mean what did you guys think about that i mean i think that's Mm -hmm. i totally agree in that it's it's weird especially with diane arbus where it's like her whole artistic fascination was with sort of the marginalized elements of society in like any number of ways and Mm -hmm. that wasn't really like a romantic pursuit you know she was like a street photographer she would like walk up to people and just kind of like hear their stories and take pictures of them and like that is like it's weird as a film about her as an artist in that way in that like her her internal focus was different from what the internal focus of the movie is but what a wild Mm -hmm. focus for a movie (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, I, I think the parts that I loved the most were more uh, about just watching her when she's almost like the only one on screen and you can just kind of see her reactions to things or even, you know, very early on in the film when she's out on, you know, the terrace and just opening up her blouse and just, you know, letting the air, you know, come onto her skin and just feeling a little bit free. Those sorts of moments to me, I think, were my favorite as, you know, I'm, other people, I was watching it with my sister and she was like, oh my gosh, she's shaving him. And she that was her, I think she loved that. She's a big Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, have fan we mentioned, so I think that was like... <laughs> have we mentioned that this is a movie about a woman who falls in love with a man whose whole body is covered in fur? I feel like for maybe yeah. for listeners, we should clarify straight up that it's just, fur is literally <laughs> Literal fur, and it's a it's yes. a love story between a woman and a fur ball, and underneath that fur ball is Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you find out because in the climactic scene of the film, she sexually shaves him. Yeah, it's it's interesting too that they decided to title it fur because obviously it was. You know, um, there's a, a whole fur thing with her parents having been, you know, part of the fur industry and right. owning a department store and selling fur. But <laughs> it was very much an extended metaphor, like throughout the entire thing. And that almost doesn't really seem like it's about her, that title. You know, it's almost more about the outside factors that she was, um, you know, involved with. So it was it was interesting that they took it from they decided to frame it around that and not necessarily something more about her and who she was. Yeah. I mean, because something that the movie doesn't really touch on is, you know, people, there are certainly people who think that her photographs were sort of exploiting the totally, yeah. her subjects. And I think in the film, the her interactions with her subjects are like very warm and, and personal. And I mean, right. do you think that was sort of... Dan- dangerous that they didn't touch it at all or is it just you I know- think it's I don't I wouldn't call it dangerous but I would say it's like a little bit like like intellectually facile you know what I mean like I'm always down for the movie about the artist that makes the artist look like a terrible person <laughs> like that's always what I want like give me the hard look <laughs> and then let her shave the man and fuck him <laughs> great to see Nicole Kidman still getting those roles over the age of whatever she is yeah, that's someone her who, undisclosed who has an age. incredible. <laughs> yes. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much to Trish Bendix for being our guest. You can find her writing online and on Twitter at Trish Bendix. That's B-E-N-D-I-X. I'm Teo Bugby. And I'm Hazel Sills. And Rachel will be back next week with more Lady Problems. This episode of Lady Problems was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV Podcasts. You can subscribe to Lady Problems and all our other shows on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts.